Welcome to the Triage Method podcast with me, Gary McGowan, and my co-host, Mr. Patrick Farrell. As always, Patty, how are you this week? I'm positively fantastic, Gary. I think at the time of this recording, although this is before Christmas, this will come out the Monday after Christmas. So I hope everyone has had a phenomenal Christmas. If If it happened. If it happened, if we were allowed, I hear the the Brits are uh, perhaps not allowed to have Christmas. But look, that's a they cancelled Jesus, literally of all things, of all things, like in a in a predominantly Christian nation. You just hate to see it, Gary. But yeah. anyway, look, that's not here, and potentially this might even come out before Christmas. So who knows? <laughs> um, but. What are we discussing today? What is the topic of discussion? Well, actually, before we get into that, Gary, how are you? I always forget to ask you how you are. I just want to make sure all our listeners know if you're okay or not. Yeah, this could be the time where I just absolutely empty it out onto the table. I'm like, I've been having such a hard time these last six months. You never ask me, bro. I'm good. Um, mostly good. Uh, the last few, the last few weeks now, to be honest, have been pretty rough in terms of study and exams and trying to balance the whole living life and doing a bit of training with the restrictions on the gyms and all that sort of stuff so i think like many people this year which this will probably be like our last podcast even comes out this year even thank yeah, god yeah it should be, yeah, it should be on the 28th of yeah December. so this will be the last one of the year i think um it's obviously been a, a chaotic year most people will probably have felt that and i think that now that we're potentially facing into a third lockdown maybe we don't know everyone's like oh my god please no not again don't do this to me because everyone's thinking 2021 is going to roll around and then we're all going to be happy so for me like nobody or like everyone else um the shutdown of the gyms, the kind of back and forth with the gyms, the jujitsu still not being back. Like that's one of the things that really is very late to come back because of the contact. Um, and then other things like, you know, uh, the whole college studying online, us having uncertainty with our business, you know, are the gyms going to stay open? What do we say to our clients? So there's been lots of uncertainty. Um, and I think we'll all be glad to see the back of 2020 presuming 2021 might be a little bit better <laughs> hopefully and hopefully we won't have to start singing six emperor tyrannus in the streets and revolt <laughs> against our unbenevolent overlords but anyway look that's beside the point gary the actual topic of discussion today what is it going to be so today what we're going to talk about again we're continuing with um this thread of discussing obesity and you know the line of causality you could say and the different things that we can do to potentially intervene as individuals and as people who are maybe extending our vote for certain policies um understanding the views of you know public health professionals understanding why maybe people might recommend different different things at different stages of the lifespan to reduce obesity risk etc okay because this is one of those things where you do really have to understand the full thread of causality which is why i put it like that because very often when we reduce it down to um some of the topics um, even just even just discussing the different things that influence obesity, we very rarely extend it out, you know, temporarily and ask ourselves, you know, what what initially happened and then what and then what and then what. And I think of it like, you know, if someone was telling you a story and they were recounting the order of events, that'd be a really important part of the story, you know, because if they're not telling you the order of events, then that's not particularly helpful. 
And that's especially important when we look at um, childhood development generally, um, but particularly when we start to look at um, obesity risk and future risk of cardiometabolic disease, because obviously, as we'll touch on in this podcast, there's many different points where, you know, um, feeding behavior isn't necessarily um, dictated solely by the individual. The obvious example being breastfeeding or early childhood nutrition. Um, but even as we move into adolescence and beyond, we'll still expose in this podcast, I hope, how so many things are influenced beyond just um, the individual, but also while recognizing that, that there's power there too in them being able to lead change. Yeah, and see, this is, this is something that we've obviously been struggling with effectively over the last few podcasts to discuss because there's multiple ways that you can, first of all, look at this obesity epidemic. It's multifactorial, like we've discussed, mm-hmm. right? But also it's like there's multiple ways you can, I'm going to say, address the, the situation. Like obviously there's some things that you can do to take, you know, individual responsibility for, you know, that individual accountability aspect of things, but also how that ex- extends into you know, the individual accountability of what you do to your, your children or how you treat your children, how you raise your children, all that kind of stuff. Um, but then also how your vote in a democratic society, assuming like most people that listen to this or watch this are in a democratic society, like your vote has some, um, you know, weight in, in terms of government policy and, you know, what's going on <clears throat> with all that kind of stuff. Um, so, you need to be as informed as you can be around these topics. And as Gary was saying there, like we need to have that thread of events, that, that kind of timeline of the, the the situation that's going on. And while the last few episodes we've been discussing, you know, some, we'll say mechanistic stuff, some hypothetical stuff, some, you know, just pure causal stuff. One of the things I do want to touch on and is, and the reason I want to touch on it is not so much to be like preaching in terms of, you know, telling you how to raise your kids or telling you, you know, whatever, like basically how to live your life and how to live your kid's life or, you know, get them set up for a good life. Like realistically, I don't really care, you know, <laughs> like I'm on, I can only live my life. I can only do my stuff. However, I think that if we look after the children, we end up 10, 20, 30 years with a better society overall you know so that's my kind of perspective on it and i think a lot of times when we talk about childhood obesity you know a lot of stuff gets very preachy very you know much you know finger pointing finger wagging a blame game on the parents and that's that's obviously not what we want to do here and do realize that as we go through this discussion because what i want to do with this discussion is lay out a kind of scenario rather than telling you what goes wrong in terms of childhood obesity and the, the, the causes of that, um, I want to discuss more so in terms of how we could potentially move things to remedy the situation. And while we will be doing further podcasts in terms of how to tackle the obesity epidemic, in terms of like, you know, if you're a personal trainer, how to train a client with obesity, like stuff like that. I do want to put this podcast at this point while we're still kind of going through some of the the more mechanistic, the more causal stuff, um, the more of the, the issues around obesity. And um, I do want to put it here because this is kind of the start. This is where it all starts in terms of the individual level, right? What happens to you as a child in terms of like, you know, you don't have a huge amount of say in the what's going on when you are 
as Gary said, like breastfeeding or whatever, um, or bottle feeding or like formula feeding. Um, like you don't have a huge amount to say you're a child, you know, like it's, it's, it's out of your control. Right. Um, but that stuff does leave an imprint in terms of how you then go on to interact with the world. Like we know in utero and even in early breastfeeding, or even I should say verse, breastfeeding versus formula feeding, we know there are epigenetic changes that occur that can set you up for uh, a higher propensity for obesity uh, or a lower propensity for obesity. So this stuff is important, right? It's important to understand. And again, I don't want this to be uh, a session of like finger wagging and blaming of like, you should do this or you should have done this and you're a bad parent because you didn't do this. Like ultimately that doesn't help move the conversation along, right? And what we want to do ideally is walk through how we could effectively intervene in childhood to move society to a better position with um, the obesity epidemic that we're, we're facing. Does that make sense, Gary? Yes, sir. Trying to add to that before we get stuck in? Uh, no, we can get stuck in. Let's go. Right. So effectively, we're going to start and we're just going to talk through some good habits that you can bring into your child's life, right? Because like obviously the earlier, the better with a lot of this stuff. But if you have a child that's eight, 10, 12, like there is still time to significantly, significantly intervene. And this is especially true before puberty. And like, obviously during childhood, you have, you know, early growth and all that stuff. And like a lot of the stuff that you're going to be left with for your lifetime, like it happens there, but also puberty is also something, a time where a lot of this stuff gets solidified. Right. And I always like to use, as anyone who listens to the podcast, I always like to use um, more um, visceral or more um, picturesque, I should say, um, imagery in terms of examples, how this actually plays out. For example, with this, like you could be obese as a teenager. Now, this is obviously somewhat hypothetical, somewhat speculative and somewhat hyperbolic, but you could be obese as a teenager and as a result have uh, reductions in testosterone in the body because some of that testosterone is being converted to estrogen. And as a result, you know, you have less testosterone because estrogen is a negative feedback inhibitor of uh, testosterone secretion. And that can lead to a situation where you have less dihydrotestosterone in the body. And DHT is one of the signals that like actually dramatically influences uh, penis size in uh, males, right? So if you have less DHT in uh, your teen years, like you could be left with a smaller penis for the rest of your life, right? Now, that is hypothetical. Like I'm not saying that an individual that was at 17% body fat versus 15% body fat is going to have a smaller penis for the rest of their life. However, I just like to use that because you're all going to remember that, right? You might not remember the exact mechanism, but you're going to remember that the stuff that you do earlier in life is going to have an impact for the rest of your life. And that's what I want to get across. And while that's obviously a a more graphic um, representation, I bring that up because again, you're going to remember it, but a lot of other things are happening. And while I can say that, oh, you're going to get these epigenetic changes, like that's not as, you know, fixable in your memory you might remember oh yeah epigenetic changes but to discuss all of them like we'd be here all day you know there's there's papers on this stuff there's like entire fields of science on this stuff and you know we're not going to get into all of that however what we can get into is setting up a situation where you're going to be 
better able to, let's say, control obesity levels in childhood, or at least introduce better health habits so that even if the individual is obese or overweight in childhood, there's a way out from that. It's not a, uh, a jail sentence, if you will, like in terms of you're not obese as a child and then you're just, I have no habits. I have to break 20 years of conditioning, 20 years of nutrition habits, exercise habits to then try to deal with this obesity when I go out into the world as you know, an 18, 19, 20 year old um, and have to like, you know, take personal responsibility for my actions you know so there's a lot of stuff that you can bring in earlier and obviously again the earlier the better with a lot of this stuff and hopefully move your child or you know children overall into a better position with their overall health and as i said like that's ultimately the only thing i really care about with the uh, obesity epidemic i'm kind of a, a bit black pilled on the issue well i think at the individual level i'm like yeah we can definitely impact change like i've trained obesity or obesity i've trained obese individuals like i had one client that lost 100 kilos like that's what i weigh you know um so like i've i've trained individuals that are significantly overweight i've seen the struggles there and while on an individual level i can clearly see that you know a large portion of change can be made to that individual's life, right? I'm kind of blackpilled on the population level in terms of how we would move the whole society towards a, a better relationship with food, right? However, in my mind, I'm like, if we got the kids in a good place, you know, our generation or the generations around us might not be in a great position, but at least we know, you know, in future, hopefully, we would be in a better position. Does that make sense, Gary? Yeah, absolutely. I think that the hallmarks of a of a good society they'll want to live in are respecting the elderly and respecting kids and everyone else in between. Let's go to war <laughs> with each other. <laughs> Especially the young men, is it? Oh, yes. Well, obviously, you know. <laughs> anyway, right. So there's a few things. And again, I don't want this to be like preachy in terms of telling you how to raise your kid or what to do. I want to more so have this as a thought experiment in terms of like, if you were thinking about this stuff, like what are the things that you would do for a child to hopefully move towards a less obesogenic environment for that child? And one of the things that you can really easily do, and I say that as someone who firstly doesn't have kids, that's my bias. However, like everyone in my family has huge families. So I probably have more parental experience than quite a lot of people listening to this because I basically raised about 20 kids. Um, so take that from what take from that what you will. Um, I've changed far too many nappies for someone who doesn't actually have kids themselves. Um, but anyway. Did you breastfeed? Um, yeah, I actually just started injecting myself with a load of prolactin and then stimulating my nipples. Um, it really releases a lot, a lot of oxytocin as well in my brain. I felt really good while I was expressing milk for those children. Nice. Anyway, um, one of the things that you can do, which again, on paper, really like stupid simple, right? Um, in reality, in practice, it's a lot harder, especially if you're trying to intervene with this intervention later on in that child's life. And the, the intervention is bringing vegetables to the child's diet right um like that's that's something that if you can do in an early earlier position in the child's life first of all we know uh, with individual with individuals with obesity like you can actually have a situation where you know calories are sufficient or even to an excess but they're actually malnutri or malnourished in terms of getting actual nutrients like i always use the example that 10 percent of students are subclinically uh, vitamin C deficient, or I should say another way, if you remember your history, like 10% of students 
are basically at risk for scurvy, you know, what pirates used to get when they were at sea, right? Because they don't get enough vitamin C in their diets, right? So like, we know this can happen, even though we live in a society where it's so simple to go down to the shop and just get a multivitamin and cover all your bases if you knew your diet was insufficient in some areas, right? But obviously a better way, thinking longer term with the child, with society, et cetera, like if we can set up a situation where we intervene early with getting them to like vegetables, um, that's a win, right? Because again, it, it leads to a situation where they're getting more fiber in their diet, getting more nutrition in their diet in terms of like micronutrients, phytonutrients, all that kind of stuff but also a situation where they're going to be better able to manage their hunger cues because we know consistently individuals who eat more vegetables are better able to handle their hunger because it is very satiating food stuff to eat, especially if you are eating more fibrous vegetables, more uh, low calorie, high volume vegetables, right? So that's something that you can do. Now, there's two issues with that, obviously. And the first is children generally don't like vegetables and this is this is multifactorial a large part of it is because children generally don't like anything that is out of the normal and if you've only ever been feeding them i don't know rusks and liga like these fucking bland like wheat based um foods it's like they're like they're not going to like something that doesn't have the same texture it doesn't have the same taste whatever like kids don't like different things right and like they basically end up eating stuff that's all either you know, just bland white stuff. They're like, oh, I want chips tonight, you know, or I'll have bread, you know, and, or they end up liking like obviously super sweet things. They're like, oh yeah, can I have this super chocolate packed sugar laden, whatever cereal, whatever, you know, like kids end up doing that. Whereas they don't end up liking vegetables. And a lot of this is again, just that's the way humans are wired. But a lot of this is as well, because they went fed those things at an earlier age you know like if you go from a situation where you're weaned from either formula or breastfeeding like we should say that breastfeeding is obviously ideal but there's a lot of situations where that's not an actual accessible intervention so like i don't want to make people feel bad because they weren't able to breastfeed especially in like places like ireland where you know in the 90s like they were told formula was better than breastfeeding like that was actual advertising you know so it's like like i wasn't breastfed you know like i was formula fed right and um, me too i think so it's like like that, that, that was the, the advertising in the 90s so like you shouldn't feel bad if you're listening to this and you have kids that are in their 20s and 30s or whatever and you're like oh shit man i did i give them something bad it's like it's not bad and um, but breast is best um that's that's generally the case but obviously there's a lot of situations where that's not possible but anyway look what i'm talking about is if you were to wean from either formula or um, breast milk and um, if you could wean onto vegetables like pureed vegetables not necessarily like you know the stuff that you buy in the, the store that's you know full of salt like it's actually recklessly high in sodium a lot of those things um, and sugar and stuff because you know makes them more likely to eat all their their uh tomato puree or whatever the fuck it is <laughs> um, but obviously if you can make it yourself effectively that would be ideal and um, getting your child to like vegetables long term however like we are very much aware if you've been listening to this series that there's a lot of we'll call them socioeconomic barriers to that as we've discussed previously you know like access to this stuff access to fresh vegetables access to you know stores that are catering for you know the stuff that you want and um, access to the knowledge the information etc so we're 100 percent aware of the socioeconomic ramifications of what we're saying and we're going to have to park that for a minute to actually discuss this stuff because like 
we can't cover that every single time we give a recommendation like that's implied we understand that now we're going to talk about that in future we've talked about it in the past on various podcasts it is definitely a huge consideration in all of this you're going to have to find some way to navigate that and again we'll touch on that in the future so do you have anything to add to the introduce vegetables stuff gary i think that's a fairly good thing that we could do as a society for childhood obesity at whatever the age is get children to enjoy vegetables yeah and 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 like you say you know that that early period like it does seem to be quite important including like when the weaning period is even like you know as you say breast is best and also there seems to be like a a temporal component to that and that if you can keep up to about at least um six or seven months kind of from what i've read anyway seems to be six months is what they say just as a historical perspective on this Mm -hmm. like most humans or first of all women generally reach didn't reach menopause and purely because they were basically um amenorrheic or oligomenorrheic because they were breastfeeding um, for two years in most cases, right? And that also was both a natural form of contraception because generally if you're not going to ovulate while you're breastfeeding, which that's what generally happens if you are breastfeeding as much as the child needs, not in all cases now. I'm not saying that you can have as much sex as you want while you're breastfeeding and you won't get pregnant. That's not the case. Um, But a lot of the time they would breastfeed, like historically breastfeed for like two years because again, that would become a form of contraception and also like it was an easy form of feeding the child whatever so like that's the historical perspective but most organizations would say that six months is the kind of breastfeeding timeline again even with that there is obviously caveats and that's not always possible especially if you are a working female and you want to return to work it's not like you can go back to work and be like here sorry i actually have to whip my kid out here and breastfeed you know but obviously there are ways around that nowadays with like you know breast expression pumps and whatever else that you can store it for later and whoever's minding the child can feed it to them and and this is funny because we i think we discussed it previously maybe you and me discussed it but maybe we discussed it on the the podcast like there is a whole load of like chrononutrition stuff around like breast milk which i think is actually really fascinating in terms of like if you express that milk in the morning like it has higher levels of like cortisol and wakefulness hormones and whatever else whereas if you express that milk in the evening and give it to your child it has more melatonin and you know whatever else um so it's like there is a chrononutrition aspect to that. So you probably, if you are going to express milk, like I probably would express nighttime milk and give it to them at nighttime versus morning milk and give it to them in the morning. Um, but obviously that's a further layer of complexity that potentially is a barrier to all this stuff. But yeah, I just wanted to layer on that historical perspective in terms of like six months is generally what government organizations recommend but they also say i think after three months as well it's like that's kind of like the the 12 week period they're like you should try do it for that first three months at least ideally up to that kind of six seven month period that seems to be a, a good place to be at and again obviously i don't know your fucking socioeconomic status your situation so like if you need to go back to work like you need to go back to work <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And I mean, like, we're just saying, like, as it is, the evidence would at least suggest that up to that six or seven month mark um, does reduce risk um, or the development of, of childhood obesity. And, and the thing that that's really important here, I guess, when as we discussed the early childhood period, is that it's not just about the early childhood period. So, like, one of your biggest predictors for going on to develop adult adulthood obesity and, and maintaining that for life 
is the development of it in childhood um, and adolescence. And that, that might seem obvious, um, but, you know, if you're a parent or something, you know, you might not necessarily think of what the ramifications of that are going forward. And it's not necessarily to say that you can just push a button and change it, um, but there is a, a fairly significant risk, like up to five times in some, some studies of someone, if they are obese in childhood, to going on to basically maintaining that obesity in adulthood. So it's an important time. Hundred percent, um, but yeah. So we're in agreement. Vegetables good as a childhood intervention against obesity. Like it's fair to get them on that carnivore hype, no? Maybe, and um, that's usually I introduce that at like eight years old. That's generally when, that's coming later on, Gary. Don't worry. Um, but anyway, um, another thing is like don't use food as a reward, right? And this seems fairly straightforward if you've ever actually like coached individuals. Like if you're a coach and you're coaching individuals with their nutrition, obviously, um, like don't use food as a reward. Like it, it sets up bad patterns with nutrition. And if you've ever dealt with someone that has, we'll call them, um, disordered eating habits, like a lot of it does come from similar things to this in terms of using food as a reward. And what I mean by this is like people will effectively teach their kids that if they ever do anything good, you reward yourself with food, right? And that is somewhat intrinsic to humans in terms of like, we have feast days and we have like bountiful harvest days. Like that's, we've been doing that for millennia. Like I'm not saying that we need to get rid of that practice. What I'm saying is people end up rather than going like, oh, we had a feast day of, you know, meat and veg at our bountiful harvest, you know? It's like, no, your kid was like, oh yeah, I did really well in school today. And they're like, oh, here's a chocolate bar, you know? Um, and that's happening multiple times per week, per month, per year, rather than like historically where it's like, oh yeah, we get like a feast day twice a year, you know? It's like, you can still use food as a reward. It should just be very much, you know, a, a larger time frame between these rewards if you are going to use it as that, you know? Like not everything needs to be rewarded with food, right? Um, and a lot of parents do that. And again, I'm not pointing the blame. Like I understand why that is the case like you want to reward good behaviors so like food is an easy one to reward like here's some sweets but it does set up negative patterns in future in terms of their ability to <clears throat> deal with their emotions because every single time they like an individual who has you know grown up like in this environment they have to reward anything they do with food and it's very easy to get into a situation where like you basically start rewarding the fact that you got through the day with food. And this can be further compounded where people effectively give their kids mixed messages, right? And like, this is kind of like this kind of, we'll say like Pavlovian response thing, you know, with dogs or whatever, but, um, or just operant conditioning, like reward conditioning, where people will use something as a reward for good behavior to try to encourage that good behavior, right? But when people are raising children, what often happens is, people will use a reward, say sweets, chocolate, whatever, McDonald's, whatever it is. Um, and they'll be like, this is your reward, right? For good behavior, for doing your chores, for doing well on an exam, whatever it is, right? But then they'll also use very similar things to placate their children in terms of like your child is having a tantrum and you're like, oh, I just need this kid to shut up. So here's a sweet, you know, it's like, that's extremely mixed messages for that child where it, like, obviously you have to navigate the situation. And obviously there's cases where you, you might have to do this. Like they're screaming in a fucking, I don't know, the cinema or something. And you're just like, right, look, we need to watch this film. It's for your brother's birthday. You know, you need to be quiet. It's for him. You know, there's, there's situations, right. Um, but if we set up a, a situation where this child 
gets rewarded for good things with food and gets rewarded for bad things with food, like effectively all they know how to do to deal with their emotions is turn to food, right? Because that's what they've been taught their whole life. It's like, whenever I feel higher emotions, either elation or, you know, negative, depressive emotions, whatever, it's like, I turn to food. And you can obviously see how that sets up a situation where people turn to food pretty much every day for, you know, reward effectively. It's like, oh, I had a bad day in work. Cool. Where's the Ben and Jerry's, you know? Um, oh, I had a great day in work. Cool. We're going to have loads of sushi tonight, whatever it is. You know, it's like you set up a situation where you're always rewarding yourself or, you know, effectively medicating yourself with food to treat your, 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 your sadness or your, your depressive symptoms. I'm not saying you have depression, but like, you know, general life, depressive symptoms. Um, and that's just not a good place to be in. Now, how do you solve that? How do you navigate that? Like, it's going to be a case by case basis. This is not going to be a thing where I give you all the answers and go, this is exactly how you raise your kids. I'm just saying that you need to think a little bit deeper about this in terms of how you are actually rewarding or incentivizing behaviors with food, right? Like, I'm not saying that you can't do it. It certainly can be done well. And it certainly isn't a inherently negative thing. But it is something that you have to think a little bit deeper about when you are looking at actually raising a child and bringing in these things or bringing in these things to reward or incentivize, incentivize different behaviors. What are your thoughts on that, Gary? Yeah. And I think another thing that goes beyond that as well is, is not even, not even simply um, like how you're rewarding them or just, shutting them up effectively you know as soon as as soon as the child and gets loud in a particular area or whatever starts being bold um you just give them food along with that there's also how you kind of lead yourself as well um and i think that's something that that definitely plays into this because if as a a role model for example a parent basically lives in that way um in that you know they they demonstrate that oh you treat yourself with food but also if you're feeling bad you know you have food and it's constantly um some sort for high or low emotions then that's also learning in in in, it might be conditioning in such a way but it's still learning through um observation and through promoting a certain norm within the family um and then also there's the, just the aspect of, you know, how, what the, what the restrictions um, around food are in general um, within the home, which is, I guess, a, a slightly separate topic, but is very much related. Um, because I, like, I remember when, when growing up, or even if you just visited someone's house or whatever, it was always like a question, you know, can I, can I get something from the cupboard or can I have a, a biscuit is what I used to always say when I really meant like, give me chocolate if you can give me chocolate, but you know, can I have a biscuit? <laughs> if you get a rich tea, you get a rich tea, that's fine. But that was like the question because there had to be some sort of boundary. Like you can't just go and take a packet of crisps. You can't just go and take chocolate. Um, and having that kind of culture of um, free indulgence within the home is obviously um, a negative thing. Uh, for children, but also if that's reflected um, in the family, like for example, if, if, if food is constantly, if I have a child and I'm constantly, you know, indulging in my favorite foods every day and I don't have any restrictions or, you know, discipline on what I eat myself, then very clearly that sets up a, a, a poor culture in which that child is raised then that they might carry forward with them. So I think overall just realizing that um, 
learning and education is not just about what you tell someone. Like it's not just about the child knowing what to eat objectively based on macronutrients or whatever. Um, it's also the observation. So, you know, how do the parents behave themselves? Um, what do they, what do they actually say about food? You know, when they're using food, is it that they're using it for reward? Is that they're using it um, for punishment, whatever. Um, and then how do they speak to the child themselves as well is, is obviously important around this topic. Yeah, there's a few things in that. We're going to come back to the teach true example thing in a second. Yeah. But I do want to say that like, it is really important that you basically don't have this kind of like excessive freedom with food environment. You know, like maybe you could push that in terms of like you have fruit and veg out on the table and it's like, yeah, you can eat that if you want to eat something, yeah. you know, you're, you're, you're doing that. But also we want to set up a situation where they have clear boundaries with food in terms of like what's accessible to them throughout the day, but also in terms of they have structured to their day it's like here's your breakfast lunch and dinner you know like you don't want to set up a situation where your child is effectively snacking all day long because that sets up a situation where you effectively just get calorie escalation throughout their life you know where it's like oh yeah i used to snack on like a rich tea as you say gary you know um but then it's like oh yeah i'm outside the house and i'm like oh i wouldn't mind a snack or something they go into the shop it's a chocolate bar because they have money you know it's like i'll just get whatever fuck i want you know Um, and then they're doing that two or three times per day they have it in their house you know they could go to some your friend's cupboard and you look in it's just all crisps chocolates you know whatever it's like there's just freely accessible hyper caloric hyper tasty foods uh, available to them you know and like as much as like i do believe in free will and stuff um there is obviously some sort of a limit to that in terms of like if it's there you're going to eat it you know like and obviously people are coming listening to this after christmas and you can see the effect that having lots of sweets chocolates whatever else in the house has on your ability to be perfectly disciplined and adherent to your diet. Like it takes far more willpower. And while willpower is not finite as was once believed, it is still harder to stay on track when you are constantly being bombarded with easily accessible, hypercaloric, hyperpalatable, fucking damn tasty food. You know, like I know if I go downstairs now, there's loads of chocolate that I could just reach into and get, you know, like there's, there's no, no problem with that. And it's more of a surprise to me that more people aren't obese rather than the fact that we have the obesity epidemic that we do have, you know, like I would, based on just the environment and how we could set up the environment for ourselves, if we wanted to, and I'm surprised 90% of the people aren't obese, you know? And so like, it's, it's completely understandable. However, if we are talking about this raising children topic in terms of, you know, the obesity epidemic and how we can intervene here to potentially move society into a better direction, like just stop having free accessible food around the house. Like if your child's like, I want food, I'm hungry, I'm hungry, I want crisps or whatever. You're like, okay, cool. Well, we only have apples, you know? It's like, that's, if they are actually hungry, they'll eat the apples, right? Like you're not, like, I know, especially in Ireland, like they're very afraid of like your child expressed any kind of hunger whatsoever. It's like, make sure they are stuffed. You know, it's like you, you have to eat, you know? Um, and I know other cultures are like that as well. You know, like, especially when you discuss stuff like grandmother sitting over your granny's house or whatever, it's like, Oh, uh, you know, they feed you like that's basically Irish culture, you know? Um, but, uh, like babushka, you know, has to feed you. Um, um so like, it's understandable however like your child is not going to starve by going hungry like they're not going like if your child is already overweight or obese like 
going hungry for an hour or two is not going to put them into such a negative energy balance that they're ruined for the rest of their life. You know, it's like, no, it's going to teach them to better manage their hunger and also realign their expectations of what is available to them. If you're like, no, we don't do sweets in the house anymore. We do that as potentially something we do at parties or something like, even though I'm saying like, don't use it necessarily as a reward, but it's like, no, that's only for certain events. We have these things, you know, and that's, that's something that you're going to have to navigate and help your, your children learn. And obviously the earlier you intervene with this stuff, the easier, because I hate when people also say, it's like, Oh, well, my child would never go for that. It's like, yeah, because your child is nine. You know, it's like, you've been doing everything opposite to this for nine years. It's like, it's, they're obviously not going to with one day of intervention go, Oh yeah, I'll actually just change all of these nine years of my life. And the way you've been raising me, I'm not, I'm just going to change everything right overnight, you know, but I would hope that as an adult, your willpower is bigger, stronger, better than a nine-year-old child's, you know? So you should be able to move the conversation at least to a healthier place, right? But anyway, look, that we're getting kind of off track with that stuff. Basically, the food environment that is an obesogenic food environment for adults is still an obesogenic food environment for children. So don't have sweets chocolates etc just lying around the house especially if there's no boundaries around being able to reach into the cupboard or whatever and getting food you know and like there that's just a recipe for a kid to be able to go like yeah actually i'm ever so slightly mildly hungry or as we'll touch on later on they saw an ad for some sort of fucking chocolate or something they're like oh yeah actually i have chocolates in the cupboard you know and then they reach for them especially if it's available right and but uh, yeah, the next thing then, and again, it's very much in line with Irish culture. We touched on it before. This is like, don't teach your kids to finish their plate, right? Like you, you don't need to finish all the food on your plate. Like that's, well, yeah, like that's, that would be great if we all gave the exact amount of food on a plate that that individual needs, but we should realistically be teaching them to uh, have better portion control right? And one of the ways you can do this is through like the plate itself, like have children size plates, you know, like there's no reason for your child who is eight to be getting the same size plate as you, an adult, like I'm in whatever, 95 kilo male. There's no reason for my 10 kilo fucking child <laughs> to be getting the same size plate as me, you know, like it's, it doesn't make sense. Um, so you can obviously get smaller plates, but even if you don't get smaller plates, you can put out an adequate amount of food on that plate, which obviously involves you as an adult and a parent learning about what uh, an adequate amount of food is. And this is where I always refer back to that same like hand portion size control, which we've talked about on our website. We've talked about on the podcast before, and um, but you can use your hand as guidelines for food. And um, your child also has hands, you know, probably anyway. And um, like, it still holds true for them. And even if it's not perfectly accurate, because children do have slightly more demands for calories than would be appropriate for their body size, because generally they fucking run around like lunatics. Um, and obviously they're growing. So there's a lot more energy input required. And um, you are in a situation where, yeah, you, I'd rather just see them have to come back for seconds if they wanted more rather than them always being taught that, oh, you're really, you're really full. You have to finish your plate or you're not allowed to go play after dinner or play football or whatever it is, you know, it's like your, your plate must be finished. Right. And even in the case you want to ensure that they finish their plate, like they always don't eat their vegetables. Like you can save that for later and be like, yeah, you have to eat your vegetables for your 
fucking supper or your before bed meal if you want you know like that's that's something that you can do you know um but basically get better portion size control don't teach them that they have to finish their plate and on top of that teach them to be more present while eating um, and what i mean by this is like they're they're more present with the hunger cues that they have like if they're actually hungry if they're actually feeling full like what does that feel like how do they get on with that and um, do they like the foods that they're eating do they not like the foods that they're eating like how can you mono- how can you modify that to make them more enjoyable what would your child like to see like maybe they really enjoy chicken and you are always cooking beef or something it's like like how can you modify the family diet so that your child is in a good position with food like you're actually listening to them you know and obviously to be able to accurately listen to them they need to be able to accurately listen to themselves. So you're going to need to teach them that stuff, you know, especially around hunger and fullness. Like that's one of the key skills. If you can teach your child to be able to listen to internal hunger cues and, you know, fullness cues, and then also teach them what a good diet is, like they're pretty much set up for life because like that's stuff that we teach to our clients now, you know, I'll have like literally a 40 year old client and I'm teaching them these things. And it's like, if you had been able to learn this stuff as a child, we would have been in so much better position throughout your entire life, you know? So do you mind got to that guy? No, no, I think that's good. Let's keep going. Perfect. Um, I'm actually just going to, I was going to touch on something else, but I'm going to move on from that one. Um, and this one is, we just touched on it a second ago. Um, this is teach through example, right? And I mentioned there in terms of like the family diet, like that's something that you can teach by example. Like if you always go, okay, cool. I have to finish my plate. Like I have such a bad habit of, because I, if I didn't exercise, I genuinely would be obese. Um, but if uh, I have a plate in front of me, like I will literally lick the plate clean. You know, like I'm like, I finish every single thing. Like my girlfriend always gives out to me, like I will literally get the last grain of rice on that plate. You know, like there'll be nothing left. Gary will tell you as well, like meticulously clean eater. Like I never drop food because that's wasteful in my eyes, <laughs> you know? Um, but uh, yeah, so like, you need to teach your kids. Like that's not something that I necessarily want my kids when I have them to learn. So that's something that I'm going to have to be aware of when I am actually a parent, you know, and sitting around the family table eating food. It's like, perhaps I'm going to have to modify my behaviors so that they aren't learning that it's okay to lick your plate clean and finish every single last thing on it, you know? And like that, they're the kind of things that you need to be aware of because like Carrie said earlier on, children are basically little monkeys in terms of like monkey see monkey do and like they will do whatever you do you know and like obviously we know this in terms of like smoking habits and you know childhood smoking habits if their parents smoked and stuff um but it also applies to the diet like if you always sit around the tv and watch tv while you're you're eating like your children will just become accustomed to that and do that and that's not necessarily a good thing to do because as we said in the last point it's not uh conducive to you know actually being aware and present with the food that you're eating like if you're you could easily mindlessly eat thousands of calories all you have to do is distract yourself by watching tv so anyone out there that's like oh i'm a really hard gainer can't really eat foods like just distract yourself pick a hyper palatable food distract yourself watching tv and you will get thousands of calories then believe me right and but obviously that's not a recipe for uh a non-obesogenic environment you know so don't eat your food around the TV, basically set up with the environment so that you have a, a non-obesogenic environment. And that's what we're kind of going on. Um, 
but also realize that your kids are going to follow your example. And this applies both to the healthy food choices you make. Like if you always go, oh, I hate vegetables. Like what are the chances your kids are going to like vegetables? You know, very low, right? If you just have these really weird reactions to food, being like, oh, it's disgusting, oh, it's horrible. Like your kids are going to have the same reactions. If you don't eat protein, you don't eat meat or whatever, like your kids are likely going to have the same reactions so they're going to pattern after you right and um, like effectively you are parentally modeling like they're just modeling your behavior because they think that you are a successful individual in the environment because you're alive that's what humans have been doing for millennia it's like oh this individual that either birthed me or you know is raising me or whatever it's like they survive the environment so i'm going to fucking copy what they do because hopefully that'll lead me to surviving the environment you know like that's that's why we have mirror neurons in the brain. It's like, that's, that's fucking, that's why they're set up, <laughs> right? And like, it's evolutionarily advantageous to be able to do that. However, obviously in an obesogenic environment, like if you are an individual who is overweight, obese yourself, and you are effectively teaching your kids those habits, like they're not going to be in a great position for the rest of their life. So that might make, mean that you have to make changes to your individual eating habits and um, so that your children have better eating habits as a result which obviously again it's not exactly the easiest thing to do and as we said at the start like there are socioeconomic barriers there's whatever other barriers we have to park those for a second and um, because we've discussed them in other podcasts etc and um, but we do realize that that's obviously not always the easiest thing to do right but if we're talking about this hypothetical how would we set up the environment to better enable children to not be obese that is one of the things that i would definitely definitely prioritize and this extends beyond just nutrition this extends both to exercise as well but also then in terms of like how you interact with the the world like if you have a negative a pessimistic view of the world like your children are probably going to pick up on that too and that obviously does interact with their ability to be adherent to the diet but that's a whole host of other stuff that we're not going to get into in terms of like the psychology uh, around food around all this whatever and that's much more involved much more in depth Um, but if you are an individual that always exercises you're an individual that always eats healthily the chances your children are going to do those two things go up astronomically you know and what are your thoughts on that Gary? Yeah, absolutely. Like, as I said earlier, I think that like leading from the front is, is really one of the most important things. And it goes beyond just, um, like how or what you eat, for example, and not having those, those bad habits of eating in front, front of the telly and stuff like that. But also in terms of, um, having like having a structure to how your family lives their life as much as that is possible. Obviously there are very significant barriers here and they're not even just, um, socioeconomic it could also be like literally the opposite that you know your mother you're a mother or father and you just work ridiculously hard because you're a career person and you're not home for dinner but maybe the other parent is or, is or you have to work two three jobs because yeah know, exactly status okay? exactly yeah and 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 the thing with that is that, you know, that that becomes further challenging then if you are a single parent, for example, and maybe your children have to go to their grandmothers or whatever every now and then. Like I have, you know, two parents that raise me, but I still would, you know, my grandmother would mind me every now and then and blah, blah. But that, that could be more of a, 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 
a factor that comes into um, your family environment that could disrupt potentially um, the structure of like, let's say the typical like three meals and a snack kind of thing, or even just the three meal structure. Like that seems very basic. And we've talked about this in the podcast before where like eventually all the fit fam people and personal trainers are going to have to grow up and raise kids someday, assuming you want to have kids. And you know, what, what do you want them to basically inherit your, your kind of way of eating where you just like prep a load of meals, maybe six meals and eat out of Tupperware or the other side of things, you have no structure at all. You just track your macros and you just eat crap food all the time. Once it hits your macros, Like you obviously don't want to pass those things on. So having structure within the family of, you know, there's an expectation that, yeah, we have breakfast um, at eight o'clock in the morning before you go to school, you're having your breakfast. It's as simple as that, you know, and then you have your, your lunch. Obviously, if you're in school, you have your lunch while you're at, you're at school. And then when you come home for dinner, we have our dinner at 6 p.m. That's what we do every day or whatever. You know, obviously it's individual. Um, those things can be quite important. And that that's not even just about um, those things being necessary because obviously you all know by now it could be two meals, it could be four meals, and you could still be very healthy. But the key thing is that it sets some 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 key habits, some key expectations and structure that carries forward then. Because it's when you move into adolescence and you become a teenager who's a bit more rebellious and stuff that you push back against basically any structure. And the less structure there is, the less that's going to be there at the end of that. So for example, if you're if you're like in that moody teenager phase, it might be that, you know, I just want money for lunch. All the boys go to Dunn's at lunch and they get cookies and I just have my stupid packed lunch, you know. Um, those types of things start to creep up and where that then becomes a real problem is when you go to college and if you go to college and you've never had any structure to having breakfast having lunch having dinner suddenly things just become chaotic and you don't really know how to cook for yourself you never even thought about it you never thought it was important (laughs) and now you're just having cocoa pops for breakfast and takeaway pizza and chips and a coke for a fiver for your dinner and that's where things really start to um, become more chaotic but that all starts in childhood or potentially which also brings me to the next point. There's a few things you brought up there, but they come later um, in this discussion, Gary. You're always jumping ahead. Um, but one of the things that you can also do with this kind of parental modeling or teaching your children beyond just the actual act of like how to eat a better diet in terms of like getting them a protein source, like all the exact same things that apply to a normal human, like they apply to children as well. Um, but obviously, you know, as we said, like some things are better interventions for children as well in terms of like, you know, getting vegetables in, nutritional or sorry, uh, hunger awareness etc um but apart from that teaching them to actually cook and you know making that a part of their lives in terms of you know giving them habits and giving them structure giving them whatever like it, it really does set them up so much more beneficially than if they don't know how to cook like you said gary you go on to college you don't know how to cook it's like you're you're kind of in a bad position overall you know um, so that's something that's definitely an early childhood skill. Like the earlier you can bring that in, the better. And um, now obviously again, huge socioeconomic challenges to this um, and depending on the exact household, like, yeah, we can say like, oh, teaching kids to cook is a really beneficial habit to do. But if all you ever cook is chicken nuggets and chips, like it's not exactly teaching them a huge amount of like culinary skills to, you know, pour out a load of oven Uh, chips and a load of like i don't know whatever chicken nuggets onto a fucking tray and bang them into the oven like it's not exactly a huge amount of you know cooking skills so you might have to educate yourself more on cooking which again this is one of the things we'll 
we've touched on and potentially we'll touch on in the future in terms of how to deal with the obesity epidemic. It's like, get some good cooking skills. That's, that's one of the fucking major things you can do to win at this. Now, obviously again, there's huge caveats to this because like, it's just hard to first of all, fit the time in to then, you know, teach them to actually cook. But if that is something that you have the privilege of being able to do, it is obviously something that is really beneficial for the, the child overall, right? And this is something that potentially going forward, if you were able to, you know, petition your school, the school that your children go to, or petition your government to have like cooking skills as a mandatory thing they do do throughout the week. You know, it doesn't have to be doing it every day. Now, obviously there's huge barriers to that in terms of like, schools now have to be outfitted with, you know, fucking cooking implements and whatever else. Um, but it is something that would be quite beneficial. Um, the reality of it, is it, it, the reality of it actually being implemented is far harder, obviously, but that is something that could potentially be beneficial. Um, the only other thing I wanted to touch on this is, um, this is kind of a bit controversial, but also we're talking about like more science based things that you can do um, rather than like whether this is a good thing or not. And this is, you know, weigh your child, like monitor their weight, right? Now, obviously you don't want to be excessive about this and you definitely don't want to teach them that they need to be hyper-focused, hyper-fixated on their weight. Like that's not a beneficial thing to do. Like I grew up boxing um, and I know a lot of my peers and stuff who are very much like they had to stay in their weight class. Like, you know, so they were very fixated on that. And I don't think that led to good habits for them later in life. Um, but anyway, that's an aside. And um, obviously we know obviously the examples of individuals, especially young teen girls and stuff getting like hyper fixated on their weight and, you know, having negative outcomes as a result of that. So this one obviously has to be kind of tiptoed around and we have to do it judiciously. Um, but you do want to make sure that they are growing at an appropriate rate. Like we do this for newborns, for babies in terms of, you know, monitoring their growth and they have certain key milestones, you know, whatever at three months, they should weigh this at six months, they should weigh this, et cetera. Right. <clears throat> like to do that to make sure, well, in Ireland anyway, like I don't know about other countries. I think they do that in England as well. Not sure about America and um, not sure about Australia or any of those other places, but it's a good thing. Obviously there is, issues to that like for example i was born an 11 pound baby and so up until about fucking two years i was always above the growth trajectory because most babies are born like fucking seven pounds (laughs) and so that's you know there obviously are limitations to that and but it is a good practice to have in terms of childhood uh, like babies baby childhood uh, but also in terms of childhood when your child children are actual children not babies and but obviously this is something that you have to keep an eye on like we do it really playfully with height you know like people will be like oh let's mark off your height there on a uh, a board in the house or you know on fucking a doorway or whatever you know they do it kind of playfully with that so you could kind of do the same with weight although maybe not because that height stuff gets kind of competitive you know well at least in my head like my house is full of boys so like that kind of got competitive and like I'm the second tallest brother in my house. One of my brothers is six, seven and I'm obviously like six, five. And, um, but like that shit gets competitive. So potentially I wouldn't be, you know, getting them to fixate on the numbers either. Like kids would be like, yeah, man, I need to eat more to fucking get up to that hundred kilos. You know, <laughs> um, like there's obviously the potential for that. Um, but it is something that you could, should keep or potentially keep a log of uh, just to make sure that, you know, they're not gaining at an excessive rate um, and that they are meeting kind of, normal growth trajectory especially this like this is not just applying to obesity this is also applied to like 
relatively skinny kids like you don't want them you don't want them to be undernourished the other side of it um you know like in terms of they don't have enough calories like they should still be on some sort of good growth trajectory like you can find numbers figures online like i know there are a lot of stuff done in terms of like third world countries or developing countries or people call them the global south even though australia is in the south so that doesn't make sense um but you know like there are uh, targets for different ages and different ethnicities races if you will um that you can follow and they can easily be found online and they're just kind of broad categorizations broad generalizations and as i said like i was an 11 pound baby so you know maybe you were too (laughs) so um they're not not ideal do you have anything to say on that gary no phenomenal so you're all for it Really straightforward. Then <laughs> <laughs> um, I just want to touch on a few more things. Some of these, it's just it's fairly obvious in terms of how it affects children, and and some of it's not really within the, the parents' control. Like the stuff we just covered there, like that's somewhat in the parents' control. You have a lot of leeway around that stuff because it's your actions. And obviously, as we acknowledge, huge socioeconomic barriers, huge monetary, etc., barriers, but some of the stuff isn't necessarily within the control of like the family unit. Right. And one of the things, and a major thing is like advertising to children. Right. And this is obviously, you're not going to change the media. You're not going to change the role models, your, your children like pattern after, like we're saying, obviously you could be a good positive role model, but if their role model is Ronald McDonald, you know, and he's advertised on the media all the time. Like you might remember earlier, earlier in your life, Gary, that there used to be proper, like, happy meal ads like ronald mcdonald the fucking burglar teeth or whatever the fuck he was the hamburglar i don't know what the fuck his name was but uh like stuff like that they used to have literal ads on that shit at children's programs you know and like obviously that influences your child's psyche and their desire for food like i know literally i could watch an ad for mcdonald's or whatever and i will get hungry and i'm an adult and i'm nutritionally educated and i would like to think that i have some control over my body however I see that fucking burger and I'm like, hmm, would love a bite of that burger, <laughs> you know? So children are even more so, you know, influenced by this stuff. So you can either ban your children from watching TV, advertising, whatever, but realistically they're going to walk down the street and see a fucking hamburger or a Coke or whatever advertised on the side of a bus stop, on the side of a bus, on the wherever. And the only way this is actually going to change is through government intervention. And I certainly am not one for huge amount huge amounts of government intervention as they always seem to fuck shit up as demonstrated repeatedly and um, by history and obviously 2020 and the, the covid response however like they still can do good things with interventions in this area like they did it with smoking and that has been a, a raging success so we know they can do good things it just has to make sense right and um, do you have anything to say on the advertising to children because this is something that we're going to touch on more broadly in terms of advertising and economics and that kind of stuff around this, uh, the topic of obesity. But this is something that you should be, if you have children or you want to have children in the future, or even if you don't have children and you just want a healthy functioning society in the future, like you should be campaigning for better regulation of the health food advertising space. And I know recently enough in England, um, like I don't keep up with everything in England, obviously, because I don't live there. Um, they were doing some stuff for around this. They were bringing some fucking petition to government um, and the government was doing a, what are those things called? Not a quiz. Uh, referendum. 
not a referendum. Like uh, they were basically reviewing the population, getting the thoughts of the population. You could fill in your fucking data, your thoughts, etc. And um, and it was around advertising in the food space for children, I do believe. Um, but uh, like that's something that you could potentially intervene with in terms of the policies you vote for, the the politicians you vote for, the the petitions you sign, etc. Yeah, I think you were looking for the word petition, were you? I'm not sure if it is a petition. I think. But anyway, it doesn't matter. Anyway, basically, what they were what they were doing were was were, were, were proposing. Um, they were polling, polling the society. They were polling for increases in uh, regulation of the advertisement of foods high in fat, salt, and sugar. Basically, your typical junk foods, essentially. And they've had a number of regulations like that. Um, over the years with um, varying success because it does obviously have an impact, you know, and I think that, you know, there's, there's been various legislations related to, for example, it might just be that before the watershed time that you can't advertise um, certain foods, um, you know, specific channels, there's some channels that are for children, not for children and children, etc. that also then carries over to things like YouTube, for example, there's YouTube and there's YouTube for kids. Like, do we want different advertising on YouTube for kids? All those types of things are worth considering. And I think that, even if that. like YouTube is actually quite good at it. Not that I'm, a huge fan of YouTube, even though this goes up on YouTube. But every time we upload a video on YouTube, like they do ask those questions. Yeah. It's like, is this for children? Is this, you know, does it contain this information, etc.? So like YouTube does do stuff on the back end. And obviously governments can also do stuff like that on the back end. Yeah, YouTube for kids definitely didn't exist when I was a child. When was YouTube? When YouTube first started like 2006, 2000, yeah. something like that. Anyway. Uh, but yeah, it was very much. It certainly wasn't point. when I was around. Yeah, well, I actually remember Google Google videos as well. I used to use a lot. Google Ogrish is what I used to use a lot as a child. <laughs> <laughs> um, some of those other websites, stupidvideos.com, I remember that. But anyway, <laughs> anyway, yeah, basically, um, even if you're the most like um, staunch, like free marketeer saying that, you know, you want people to have, you know, freedom of choice, etc. Like recognize that like, like that that capacity for inhibitory control and like truly making decisions with higher order cognitive function it it basically doesn't exist when you're a child like it's only really developing like when you it's it's pretty much only when you're around the age of 25 like i'm basically just becoming an adult because my prefrontal cortex is getting to the point where it's fully developed like at that up until that point your prefrontal cortex which is part of your brain which is responsible for that higher order very much human function the the fact that i can you know have a certain feeling or impulse and i can control that a bit more and i can you know coordinate different areas areas of my brain like how emotional am i feeling and you know, that kind of rational stuff all that is kind of um, at least in part uh, controlled by the prefrontal cortex and and those the, all of those characteristics are developing so when you have a, a child what you have to think of is that the child is fundamentally expressing like you at your worst almost so you know those days where you're thinking like oh God, all I want is food. I just want to cuddle up on the couch and I just want to feel nice and the world is stupid and I don't want to deal with this adult stuff. Like that's a child every day. So do you want, do you want to have the freedom of corporations who are explicitly trying to sell, your, sell um, unhealthy food to your child? Do you want them to have freedom to advertise absolutely anywhere, anytime and thus influence 
your your life as well because now you have to listen to your child saying oh i saw that you know kfc brought out the new i don't know triple gravy burger or whatever um like you don't you don't need to deal with that so just recognize that you know there's there's you can still be very much for the free market and minimal regulation while recognizing that well come on do we need to extend that to children as well and also it's like you can say whatever you want like don't tread on me as a government like don't tread on me like that's the typical like right-wing libertarian response but it's like why are you saying tread on me harder daddy to these multinational yeah exactly like like what the fuck like i'd rather my kids weren't influenced like that i'm like it doesn't make sense um but anyway look that's for a future podcast gary we will discuss that stuff um around the advertising there's a few other things that i want to say which this one is definitely controversial because it's not exactly easy but as i said we're putting some of those thoughts things we discussed to the side and this is um decreased there is a significant decrease in levels of obesity in children with increased levels of education in the household right so that should just behoove you to get a better education if you want to raise children now obviously we're fucking well aware that that's not always available to individuals and i personally am not a huge fan of you know universities colleges i think a lot of it is just a fucking a double monopoly they have a monopoly on education and they have a monopoly on certification which i'm all for breaking apart monopolies and starting with universities however i'm like it's still a good and beneficial thing to get in terms of bettering your socioeconomic status in a lot of cases now obviously if you get a degree that is effectively worthless like there's no jobs available like your children might be less obese because you're better educated but they'd probably be in a better position if you had a higher paying job you know and this is especially evident in certain countries where certain and and i should say states especially in america where certain jobs get reckless amounts of money compared to other areas and this really dramatically increases the the wealth disparity in those areas and as a result the health disparity in those areas you know so basically what i'm saying is you should look after your own education like i don't care if this is you getting an apprenticeship and becoming a fucking carpenter and being the best fucking carpenter that you can be personally i'm all for that you know i grew up in an area uh i'll call it a lower socioeconomic status area and a lot of my friends went into trades joined the army stuff like that so i'm all for that however we have to realize that even if that's the case and you have a trade like you can still better educate yourself become a better tradesman like that's going to lead to you getting more money in your wallet at the end of the day which then leads to your children having a better health outcome in their lifetime um, and having less risk of obesity would you agree with all that gary yeah absolutely like i think um it's fairly un- uncontroversial in theory, challenging in practice. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think anyone would disagree that it's absolutely a good idea to become more competent at whatever it is that you wish to do, you know, whether that be, you know, going down the academic road or getting a trade or whatever it happens to be, you know, whatever serves um, your needs and your current skills and your path, etc. Um, that's obviously um, all very much important you know but it i think another thing to understand is that if you are someone who's kind of looking from the outside and you're just saying 
yeah, you know, if all these people just got educated, we wouldn't have an obesity problem. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's not necessarily that simple either. It's not like someone can just go home and say, oh, you know, all right, I'm going to go on Google tonight. Let me teach myself something, you know, okay. Education is, is, is a mediator um, because, or at least partially because it is a component of or related to socioeconomic status. So it's tied to other variables, but it's also tied to the career trajectory of that person and potentially nutrition and health literacy as well, obviously totally depends um, on the field. So, so yeah, there's multiple different things that are kind of baked into the cake there when we say education. So don't just, you know, turn to someone, you know, who has children who are obese and say, well, you've got Google, come on, let's get reading. Like, like, oh, you need to get a master's level education before your children are not going to be obese, Gary. Don't you know? Um, yes. But yeah, so like that's obviously controversial enough. And as Gary said, like extremely multifactorial. And it is something we will discuss in future episodes further. Um, as I said before, we're not going to touch on everything in this episode. Um, but the other thing I wanted to touch on, um, again, related to something that is quasi in your control in terms of how you interact with the world, but completely outside of your control at the same time. And this is you can petition your school to follow healthy eating guidelines and also then follow exercise guidelines. And the exercise guidelines for children are to get 60 minutes of exercise per day. You know, it doesn't need to be all at once, but you know, spread up throughout the day. Like and that can include like walking to school and, you know, jogging to school, like cycling to school, whatever, you know? Um now obviously again that's not always available to children. So this is why you petition your school to get them to do exercise of some form each day. Like I know schools that literally don't let their kids run during break. You know, it's like, that's, it's fairly reckless or they don't have an outside space. And again, that's fairly reckless. And now again, I know there's obviously situations where you just simply can't have that, but you have to deal with the fact that children need to exercise. And this is especially important for boys and something near and dear to my heart as someone who has ADHD. Like if you don't let, these boys, especially because they're more likely to present with this and burn off this excess energy, like they're going to have worse outcomes in school as a result of not being able to focus, right? And if you know your child is like that, then again, I would just definitely petition the school to get some exercise in throughout the day and let them burn off that fucking energy, whether it's playing football, fucking organized fights, I don't know. Um, but you get some sort of exercise in throughout the day. And if you can't get that, then definitely consider, if possible, with your work commitments, et cetera, getting some exercise in before school or at least after school. So outside activities, join a soccer club, join a gar club, join a boxing club, whatever it is, you know, get them to do some sort of activity. If you like to exercise, find a club now. And now it's not always possible. And especially as we've talked in other episodes, like you might not have access to these facilities in your area. But again, growing up in a lower socioeconomic area and um, like i know that we would just organize stuff like there's definitely like town halls around and um, that you can do like i know one of the lads his dad used to box and he just charged us all a fiver per class or something like that and then taught us all to box and like that was what we did as children right and um, and obviously through my teen years etc but uh like there's stuff like that you can definitely organize it like if your school has a hall like i remember doing like karate and stuff as a child in my national school right in my, the hall in there and um, a few nights per week so there's stuff that you can do um to get your child exercising throughout the day either you as an individual bringing them to school and petitioning your school to 
do exercise throughout the day, but then also bringing them to extracurricular activities if possible. Again, I know that's not always possible, but it is something to consider. And if not, at least let them play outside on the local green if there is one, you know, kicking a football around or something if you have a backyard. Again, ideal. I know a lot of people live in apartments and stuff, but there's usually some sort of green space or something somewhere in the area. And if you have the ability to bring them there, that would be ideal. But as I said, some of this is outside your control and you're just going to have to petition your school or petition local government to get access to green spaces or get access to, you know, gym equipment, fucking monkey bars and shit for the kids um, in your local area. You know, like it's, it's, it's a harder thing to engage with, but it is something that you should be thinking about um, if you are raising kids. Yes, sir. What's your next thing? So I know what I have permission to say. <laughs> you can go on to whatever you want. The other things are, as I said to you before this podcast, the more kind of teenager related things. Yeah. Um, I think, I think like one of the important things that, that definitely is relevant to adolescence, but is also relevant um, to childhood is something that I know we are going to move on to. And that is, you know, what, what do you, like, what's the, what's the culture of, of celebration? You kind of already mentioned this, but like, for example, if you're, if the, if you're, if you're treating yourself and there's, there's a night that you do something or there's a Saturday or Sunday activity, for example, is it a case that it's just, oh yeah, we just get food and we just, you know, eat loads of food and that's all we do. Or is it a case that it's actually some sort of health promoting behavior? Like for example, um, on a Saturday, our family, we normally go for a walk or we go for a hike or we do something along those lines. Or maybe it's the case that we all go swimming and then we get some nice food. You know, it's not necessarily to say that you have to always couple those two things, but all of those things go on to add up over time. Like for example, if there's, if there's even two nights a week where it's like a family activity night and that family activity is just, you know, getting takeaway, like that adds up. That's twice a week. That's eight times a month. Like that really does add up over the long term. Um, and it's not necessarily just that you're going to end up in a surplus of calories on those nights, like you likely will, but it also just begins to build that habit of just constantly um, associating those nice occasions uh, with food, as opposed to it being a case that, you know, you get into the habit of actually doing, you know, nice things that are not related to food, because that's the reality of like, like our modern life, like it is very easy to just kind of deliver, you know, get a, get a takeaway or, you know, get, get a lot of food in and just eat it in the house and watch some movies or whatever, because everything's really accessible. Obviously it's not made any easier by lockdown. So I don't blame you if you've been doing that. Um, but those things are all really important to consider. And, and it also goes beyond just um, family in that sense, in that it's also the kind of socialization element, like how our socializing even how you socialize as an individual like so for example as a child moves into adolescence like what do they do when they meet their friends is it just all about meeting for food because they don't have anything else to do um and same as a family you know when you meet with other families is it again it's all just about food um, or anytime you bring their friends over it's just the case that you just give them loads of junk and it's as simple as that obviously those things are nice every now and then but you don't want to make every kind of positive uh, event be tied to getting some sort of takeaway or getting loads of junk food um, because it obviously loses its value um, in, in some ways. And it also um, has that conditioning effect, as we said. Um, but there's also another part to that kind of conditioning um, element. And that's that 
the more takeaway and the more junk you eat, and, and I say I say junk just because it's quick. Like obviously you guys listening to the podcast know like, yeah, you can eat, you know, these foods in moderation, etc. But if you're eating these foods all the time, it makes it less likely that the individual is going to enjoy meals that are more healthful. Like for example, if you serve up chicken nuggets four times a week, and then the other three nights we're having like, I don't know, uh, chicken breast and a couple of falafels and some broccoli, like that's unlikely to be very palatable. So you also have to realize that um, conditioning is and, and the development of those, of those habits also has you know some basis in basic biology or neurobiology on the ba- on the level of you know your actual taste buds in terms of um, what what you find palatable and taste buds and obviously the brain related to that um, and and yeah that's that's something that that comes into this as well so so there you've got you've got a lot of different um, layers built into this when it comes to the socializing and also the the celebration i guess you could say yeah like there's and this as you said like it does apply for both the childhood stuff but almost even more so as they get more freedom themselves in in terms yeah. of like their, their teen years because whatever about like you're in control like you're just like okay cool we're going home now they, they all of a sudden get a cut off with the food they have access to you know um at this celebratory event whatever it is um but if they are free living and they're able to do whatever fuck they want um as teenagers are you know off to do um and they get into college or university or out into the working world whatever like especially as they have more money available to them and they have more freedom if they don't have clear structures in place in terms of how to structure first of all their day they don't have cooking skills as gary, skills as gary touched on earlier on like you're effectively just throwing them to the wolves right? You're not setting them up for success. Like basically you have 18 years of free play on this earth, right? And that's obviously not the case for everyone. Like people die before 18 and whatever else, but you basically are given 18 years of free play. You're told you have 18 years to master. That's on the fucking level one. You know, that's, this is the, the intro level of the game of life, right? And then you're free to go by yourself. So you as an adult, if you've ever played video games, you're effectively that like tutorial. You're teaching that kid how to navigate the world. And you don't want to leave them in a situation where they don't know how to navigate the world after that 18 years old. And then they're left into a society, a system that is obesogenic because we know it is. um, And they don't have skills to navigate that situation they don't have skills to navigate the the world because you didn't help them with cooking skills you didn't help them with clear structure around the diet you didn't help them with you know getting vegetables into their diet like all the stuff we've been we've been touching on um like that's not a good place to leave your kid and this is especially true as we start navigating the the teen years because there's things that you can do in the teen years um that are the same things we would, uh, we've talked about before on the podcast and we've you know, written about and we've done whatever about um, in terms of like how to deal with like meals out. Like how are you going to deal with that? The same way you deal with it for a child is the same way you deal with it for an adult. You know, it's like you have to have some sort of plan of action for that, whether it's creating some sort of calorie buffer, making more mindful choices, better like healthful choices when you're out, whatever. We've talked about it before. I'm not going to get into it. But this is especially true when we deal with alcohol, especially in Irish society, like alcohol is, you know, ever present. Um, Like you have to teach your kids responsible alcohol use, which generally implies you have to have responsible alcohol use because as we said, children will pattern, you know, they'll, they'll do what you do. So if you are in the pub seven nights per week, like, 
they're probably going to do something similar, right? Or if they're not allowed in the pub, like they'll be out in the field somewhere, right? Um, like that's just what Irish people do, right? Um, so again, like you have to think about that stuff as you are raising kids. Now, again, some of the stuff you're not going to be able to do um, depending on your situation, but there is more responsible ways to deal with the, the situation. And obviously there's more responsible ways to help your children deal with the situation as they are teenagers, as they go to the world. Um, and yeah, obviously on top of that as well as like teaching them to be more present with the meals they do choose like that. They're all obviously good behaviors to have, but effectively you just want to teach them to navigate social situations and to navigate a life. Like that's what you're setting them up for. And the same things you're going to deal with in your day-to-day life. Like maybe you're trying to change your body composition. Maybe you're trying to live a healthier life. Like they're the same things that they're going to encounter. So why not get them, you know, or give them a head start on that stuff, right? Let them bypass all the fucking mistakes that you made and get them into a better position. So teach them the little hacks that you found out. Teach them the fucking way you navigate things. Now, you might not do it perfectly, but also realize that even if you're not doing things perfectly, just by the act of actually trying to get on top of this stuff, you're doing better than 90% of people who don't try, you know? Um, so like, that's, that's just stuff to, to be aware of. Just on top of that, then I just had a few other things. You know, you don't have to eat out of Tupperware to get results. So that's, as we said at the start, like you, you need to teach your kids beyond just like this kind of fit fam, like, oh, excessive uh, or obsessive, I should say, macro tracking and obsessive like meal planning in terms of like all your meals are Tupperware. You do meal prep for the whole week. Like that's, that's perfectly fine. Again, if you're trying to be absolutely shredded, uh, great. Um, but, you know, you should be able to eat with your kids sometimes because, again, they're going to pattern you. And if you always eat out of a lunchbox, they're going to want to always eat out of a lunchbox, you know, and that's potentially beneficial, but potentially not beneficial as well. You just have to be aware of the trade-offs, right? And you also have to teach them how to fit in, we'll call it like fun food, like junk food, as Gary was saying, um, into your diet, like how to strategically use that, as we touched on earlier on, like you don't want to necessarily use it as a reward all the time, um, but it still can become something that you introduce your kids to because you also don't want to be that parent that's like oh no my kid is only eats you know gluten-free you know um fucking hypoallergenic (laughs) foods you know macrobiotic vegan whatever the fuck right it's like you don't want to be that individual as well because you know right well they're just going to go over to their babushka's house and she's going to feed them whatever the fuck she wants right or they're going to go to their friend's family for a sleepover or you know a birthday party or fucking whatever and then they're going to be eating all those e-numbers in those fucking smarties skittles fucking cake whatever the fuck right so this is something that you're gonna have to navigate there's no really perfect way to navigate that you're gonna have to use your best judgment but you want to make your children normal normal as well as being healthy right and that's a really tough line to navigate and unfortunately i don't have the the secret for you anyway great i think that kind of wraps up like obviously this is a huge thing that we could speak for days write a book on fucking do a world tour on and we're not going to likely um but do you have anything else to add to this whole discussion of dealing with childhood obesity because as we said at the start like we don't want to necessarily give you the exact path way to navigate all this stuff. I just wanted to make you aware of, we'll call them good habits because that kind of highlights 
bad habits um, and hopefully helps you, excuse me, navigate the whole situation with that. And as I said, like I hate when these things, they effectively always come off as like finger wagging or finger pointing or whatever. And that's not my intention at all. Like, as I said, realistically, I don't care how you live your life or how you live your kids' lives. Um, I would ideally like a good, healthy society, but I'm very much a right-wing libertarian in my beliefs and how I don't want to be, um, you know, I just want to be left alone. If I could be like, I, it was up to me, I would live in a fucking cabin in the woods um, with lots of guns. But <laughs> that's not the society we live in. Um, so I, I'm just saying that I don't care how you raise your kids. Anyway, Gary, do you have anything else to say? Uh, yeah, just, I guess one final thing is is something that... Um, will hopefully not sound like finger, finger wagging. <laughs> and that is that um, like something that can be prevalent for, for some kids at different ages. Um, and I think is a particular problem now that people can retreat into online worlds is the topic of weight stigma. So if people do feel like they're being bullied, for example, for their weight at school, um, maybe it's explicit in that people are, you know, calling them names or whatever, or maybe it's just implicit in that maybe people won't hang around with them or they don't ask them to play soccer because they're like, oh, well, that kid's fat. You know, they don't want to, they don't play sports or whatever. That can actually be quite harmful. And the reason I bring that up is because some people might have a kind of a simplistic idea that we should just be more vocal about telling people that they, you know, uh, shouldn't be fat because of this, that, and the other. And like, there's a difference between putting out the information and making it sort of like the the smoking situation, because that's kind of what we did a little bit about smoke with smoking. If you look at some of the, the more like vulgar ads, for example, like they would very much um, stigmatize uh, the smoker. Um, but I guess one of the things there that that is a little bit different is that it's an isolated behavior. Um, there's a, a single thing that you change to get rid of it. And it's all adults primarily, you know, whereas in this case, it is it is a bit more sensitive. And, and there's many other reasons why it's more sensitive. But particularly when we focus on kids and weight stigma, what can happen is that if a child, um, you know, is in that situation where they're being bullied, as I said, explicitly or implicitly in some way, what can end up happening is that they basically retreat to more obesogenic behaviors. An example of that would be like, if you live in a housing estate, let's say you play soccer up the back and then, you know, there, people don't want you to play soccer anymore because, you know, they're calling you fat or whatever. And they're saying, Oh no, you can't run. You're not fast or whatever. The, the thing that happens then is the person becomes less physically active. Um, there's generally higher rates of, of binge eating after that. And there's also the case that, the person can just retreat to video games. Like that's such an easy thing to do these days. And it's a very easy way to kind of develop a false sense of socializing and like false relationships because you just talk to people on, on the headset, you know, and that, that kind of feels like your new world. And then obviously once you become of age to play or to be on social media and go on the different chat rooms and groups and whatever, you again can find another community. So again, there's a very easy way of kind of moving through life, backing away from things that are pushing against you. So that's not necessarily to, to say that, you know, if you're, um, obviously you're not a child listening to this, but it's not necessarily, it's not necessarily the child that has um, control over this, but it is something, I guess, maybe if you're a parent and you have kids to to be aware of that if your child is, you know, 
bullying someone else because of their weight or whatever that it, it is something that actually matters and and while we can be all hard and say oh no it's fine there that will help them you know diet and improve their weight like that's just not what happens in the real world and what we tend to see is actually the opposite effect so um you do have to bear that in mind 100 percent, gary and that is something that we will also talk about in future yeah episodes. that's a, a big topic as well but yeah i have nothing else to say this is a fairly meaty one like even though the stuff is i think fairly intuitive in terms of people know what to do but that's just because it's intuitive doesn't mean that it gets done Um, and this is obviously part of a larger series and i know people will listen to this in isolation and be like what the fuck is this information you know this is obviously intuitive it's not great or fucking whatever but it needs to be covered in the overall discussion as we said at the start this kind of timeline of causality um with obesity because for a lot of people it does start with the habits and whatever stuff um, around nutrition and training and exercise that they pick up in childhood, right? So if we can solve the childhood issue, then we might not solve the obesity issue now, but hopefully it's where we start moving it in a better direction in the future, you know? And again, this is the same thing with smoking, even though, yes, I'm sure a lot of individuals stopped smoking as a result of, you know, the interventions from government, etc. And I know that's the case, but realistically the payoff comes by less people starting you know like the the risk of you getting cancer after stopping smoking for 20 years smoking 20 packs a fucking day or whatever it's like your risk is still elevated you know however the risk for an individual that never started smoking because of all the interventions like they're in a far better place you know so like that's what i'm saying it's it's better to target the children to get the results that we want in future right um but yeah i have nothing else to really say gary where can people find us find more information about us etc as always um one of the best things you can do is subscribe to our newsletter the triage method newsletter linked below you can subscribe keep up with everything that we're doing you can also join the triage method community which is our facebook group but obviously if you want to get the next level you want to you know, level up as a coach and gain more knowledge, we do have the Coaches Corner, which is our membership platform. Okay, so um, some of you may have noticed, um, if you've been on our website recently, that, you know, you, you won't find a lot of the articles that you would have found previously, because basically what we're doing is we're using all of that content to formulate more in-depth, more comprehensive, more complete um, content for the Coaches Corner. So um, we, we offer both video lectures, um, isolated video, videos as well, I should say, um, as well as, as written content now within the Coach's Corner. So um, there's a lot of, of meat to sink your teeth into if you are interested uh, as a coach or as an interested trainee. Also, we do have coaching. So if you are looking to just work on your own goals, you'd like our help with those, then we do coach individuals and we would be happy to take you on, particularly as we head into the new year. And hopefully the gyms will be staying open. We do obviously have clients from across the waters as well not just in ireland um and and lockdown seem to be varying all over the place i have a client in florida she's also in lockdown our uk clients are now in lockdown or at least some of them (laughs) and our irish clients are are the the free ones for the moment but uh, there we go um so yeah otherwise guys just follow us along um on social media you can follow at triage method on instagram and everywhere else you can also follow at the real paddy farrell that's paddy's account on instagram um He's looking to increase his followers and he's 
putting out a lot of content there um, with independent posts. So would recommend and also, of course, follow myself at Skinny Gaz um, on Instagram um, and you'll just see me put reposting random stuff on my story. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's that's everything, guys. I'm going to get you to change your name to the Lord Skinny Gaz or Lord Skinny Gaz. I think that's a more fitting title. Yeah, Lord Skinny Gaz. That's my username for some things. So maybe I'll need to do it someday. That's the name of my, my laptop, actually, I think. <laughs> anyway, I have nothing else to say. Um, as Gary said, Coach's Corner, get in there. Like the content in there is really coming next level and it's it's really fleshing out into a place to be if you are interested in becoming the best coach you can possibly be. But also, as Gary said, if you're just interested in training and you're like, I want to know how to diet more effectively, like it just makes sense that if this is the stuff we're teaching coaches, the secret hacks and tricks and whatever else, like, and you want to do that to yourself, like becoming more competent in your ability to do that stuff. It just makes sense. It's just common sense. And so yeah, get involved if you will. It's linked below and you can always reach us on social media to discuss it. Uh, I'm sure Gary doesn't mind, you know, talking to you on his Instagram DMs. I do. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But also, literally DMs, like you can talk about that stuff or you can email us and we can talk you through whatever it is that you need help with. And we do also offer consultations. Um, I've been doing quite a few with individuals. It's quite fun. Um, But obviously that's more of a niche thing. Um, But yeah, I have nothing else to say. I hope everyone has a wonderful new year and I hope everyone had a phenomenal uh, Christmas. Um, Do you have anything else to say, Guy Family? No, I think that's it. You know, enjoy, enjoy your, or you you already had Christmas, so enjoy your New Year's. Um, Hopefully, if we're not locked down, you can go out and get yourself a a New Year's meal, a substantial meal and a drink. Um, But yeah, it does. I'm not hopeful about us um, being open on New Year's, to be honest. I think my prediction for now, as of the, whatever, 20th of December, is that lockdown will be reintroduced before the New Year. So there you go. Um. I unfortunately sorry to ruin your week folks i unfortunately agree with you but who the fuck knows like it's not like they use logic or reason to do the lockdowns in the first place so you cannot use logic or reason to say whether they will or will not do the lockdowns so who the fuck knows um but yeah um i'm hoping that uh 2021 it just turns midnight january 1st you know just the one minute past on january 1st and covid just ceases to exist that would be ideal um in my mind at least um but yeah i have nothing else to say follow us on the social medias and uh enjoy your new year